Today we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy topics, uh, abuses and dangers within Jehovah's Witnesses. This is the Lost Mission Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. My name is Don Van Zandt and this is the Lost Mission Podcast, where our goal is to help us as believers get back to our mission of knowing and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us. This is our series on cults, and a cult is kind of a difficult thing to define. I'll give us Walter Martin's definition of a cult, and then maybe a, a more concise definition. Walter Martin uh, defines a cult as any religious group which differs significantly in one or more respects as to belief or practice from those religious groups which are regarded as the normative expressions of religion in our total culture. For us, we're defining a cult as a group that extends far beyond um, orthodox. There are also fringe groups, which may be closer to orthodox teaching, but maybe not exactly what we would refer to as a cult. <clears throat> so we've had several videos where we've discussed Jehovah's Witnesses. We've discussed their history. We've discussed beliefs and practices, core beliefs, and then sort of secondary beliefs. We've talked about false prophecies and all sorts of things. Um, in this video today, though, we're actually going to get into some of the dangers surrounding Jehovah's Witnesses. But before we get into the video, if you like this channel, if you like this video, consider subscribing to the channel and hitting the like button on this video. Um, it's a small thing, but it really helps the channel a lot. Thanks. Let's talk about abuse of members within the Watchtower organization. There have been many, many documented cases amongst Jehovah's Witnesses of abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse, sexual abuse. And, and much of this they've tried to keep quiet. They likely would prefer to meet in a closed setting. A group of about three or so elders will meet with somebody who they feel as though needs some sort of correction. They keep it very quiet. They don't release the documents. Many times they'll, they'll kind of keep the documentation hitting, hidden. Um, but when these documents are leaked or released, many, many times there are some sad stories um, that are told. Many, many stories exist within the group of domestic violence. I've heard stories and testimonials of um, wives saying that members of the congregation watched as they were physically abused by their husbands. They were slapped and thrown into cars. Reports of pedophilia. Things like mind control where they will so confuse the minds of their members that they are they're terrified. They're afraid um, to go public with information for fear of being disfellowshipped, for fear of being shunned. Those trapped in the group can feel at times hopeless, longing to get out, but knowing that if they did, it would come at great loss. This for for the Jehovah's Witnesses, this is difficult. And really for any group that that pushes this over onto their members that if you go public, if you go forward with this, there will be a price to pay that you could lose your position within the group. And for some, they they feel as though there's a chance they could possibly lose their soul, that they could be eternally damned because they're considered apostate. They're outside of the group. Jehovah's Witnesses are strongly encouraged to break ties both spiritually and socially with loved ones when they're disfellowshipped. From JW.org. In some instances, the disfellowshipped family member may still be living in the same home 
as part of the immediate household. Since his being disfellowshipped does not sever the family ties, normal day-to-day family activities and dealings may continue. Yet, by course, the individual has chosen to break the spiritual bond between him and his believing family. So loyal family members can no longer have spiritual fellowship with him. In other cases, the disfellowshipped relative may be living outside the immediate family circle and home. Although there might be a need for limited contact on some rare occasion to care for a necessary family matter, any such contact should be kept to a minimum. Loyal Christian family members do not look for excuses to have dealings with a disfellowshipped relative not living at home. That isn't a skewed perspective. That's not a distorted view. That is lifted directly from JW.org. If you live in a home with a disfellowshipped person, you can still have contact with the person, but in matters of spirituality, you you exclude them. If it's a family member who lives outside of the home, then you only have very limited contact, and you try to slowly pull away from that. Um, It's a very exclusive approach to Christianity. It causes people to feel pushed away. It causes people to feel as though they they are not welcome. And they are not welcome once a person has been disfellowshipped. I've heard stories of shunning, of people, basically, you're dead to me once they're disfellowshipped. And and it comes to a point, to uh, one case in particular that that I read about, a young lady was recounting a story of her older sister after she was disfellowshipped who actually committed suicide. Because she felt like her life was over. She didn't have anything else, nowhere to go, nothing to do. The only route, the only option that she saw as viable was to take her own life. Because she had been disfellowshipped from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses will present this as a form of spiritual discipline, but it's not. It's more. It's dangerous. It's control. If you you don't do as we say... If you don't act the way we tell you to act, if you don't believe the things we tell you to believe, and if you have been hurt, if you have been abused, if you don't go about it the way we tell you to go about it, then then you're out. So when, when Jehovah's Witnesses do this, there is a very secretive, very abusive element that exists surrounding the group, and more and more and more cases are, are coming to light all the time of the abuses within um, Jehovah's Witnesses and of the cover-up that surrounds those. I've heard stories of children, young girls, that were abused by a person within a congregation. And even if that person had been disfellowshipped, he was allowed to come and still attend meetings in the very room with the girls that that person had abused. And it's all just covered up and swept under the rug by the organization. On the other hand, though, so that's the dark side of Jehovah's Witnesses. They won't tell you that if you are a prospective member, if you are a student. They won't tell you all of these dark, terrible things. They'll try to cover it up, act like it doesn't happen. But what they do, Jehovah's Witnesses are guilty of one of the greatest and most common cult practices that exists out there, and that is a practice called love bombing. Love bombing. What is love bombing? This practice, not uncommon to most cult groups. Basically, what they do, when they find a member 
or attempting to recruit a new member, they will tell this person how wonderful they are, how intelligent they are, how smart they are, how talented um, they are. Uh, they'll, they'll tell them just how much they appreciate them. They will show love, love, love to this person. They may buy them gifts. They may give them money. Uh, whatever they have to do to get this person to join with the group, well, um, they'll do that. Jehovah's Witnesses are a group that does this love bombing practice. However, quickly after joining the group, many groups stopped this practice, leaving the new member somewhat confused. They thought they were wonderful. Now they're, they're not treated as such. They thought they were going to really be somebody, and, and now they're, they're, they're treated as just another average, everyday person. They don't know what to do. Love bombing is a practice that is, that is used over and again by groups. It's deceptive. It's dishonest. It's not true love. It's not 1 Corinthians 13 love. It's not the kind of love that overlooks fault. It's not the, the kind of love that um, extends the grace of God. It's, it's not the God kind of love. If you've ever had much experience with Jehovah's Witnesses, you've probably had this, you've seen this happen in, in your experiences with them. Uh, it can be just something as simple as when they knock on the door, they feel like the nicest, most caring, loving people out there. <laughs> I, I, that's been my experience. And the limited experience that I've had with Jehovah's Witnesses they come across as loving, and it's that love bombing. They just literally will attack you with love. Then later, the love bomb is over. It's all done. It's 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 completed. And it's a dangerous practice because it's false, and and it's just a tactic used to lure people in. But some more dangerous practices by Jehovah's Witnesses. They have a very um, strict stance on blood transfusions. This is another one of the revolving doctrines, though. Um, years ago, Jehovah's Witnesses actually prevented things like vaccinations. Now they, from what I understand, have changed their perspective on vaccinations, but they still hold to the idea of no blood transfusions. But what do they believe about blood transfusions? If a person decides to refuse a blood transfusion um, on grounds of Christian liberty— this isn't the Jehovah's Witness belief. This is just common sense. If a person chooses to refuse a blood transfusion on, on grounds of Christian liberty, that's one thing, right? I mean, they, they can do that. They can say that, hey, I just I, I don't feel like it's something that I personally want to do. I think that falls under the Christian liberties conversation coming from Romans chapter 14. Uh, but when an entire organization claims that if one receives a blood transfusion, it could cost them their salvation, well, that's another problem altogether. But what they do, they point to passages in Leviticus chapter 17, uh, verses 14, Acts chapter 15, verses 20, to support their view. Um, these passages deal with eating uh, blood, and honestly, we as Christians would agree with that. We would agree with the Leviticus scriptures that say don't eat blood. We would agree with Acts chapter 15 um, and the Jerusalem council when they were told not to eat blood. We would we would agree with that, but it comes down to the difference of definitions that range in semantics. We say the same words, but we mean very, very different things. From reasoning from the scriptures, here's what they have to say. Is a transfusion really the same as eating blood? In a hospital, when a patient cannot eat through his mouth, he is fed intravenously. Now, would a person who never put blood into his mouth, but who accepted blood by transfusion, really be obeying the command to keep abstaining from blood? 
To use a comparison, consider a man who is told by the doctor that he must abstain from alcohol. Would he be obedient if he quit drinking alcohol, but had it put directly into his veins? <laughs> see, I hope you can see the problem there. Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they, they seem to fail to understand the difference in how science works, I guess. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they, they seem to misunderstand the difference between the digestive system and the circulatory systems. When you eat, you are taking food in or whatever you are taking into your body and you're digesting it, your body breaks it down and sends it through the other various systems in your body. Um, that's when you are physically eating something. But a transfusion injects something directly into the bloodstream rather than going through the digestive system. They're not the same. <laughs> They're not the same thing at all. Uh, so no, I wouldn't tell a man to inject um, alcohol into his veins any more than I would tell a man that he needs to eat blood physically. That's not how you receive blood, and I wouldn't recommend that somebody drink alcohol that way. But that does not mean that having a transfusion is the same thing as ingesting blood. Just just physiologically, they're not the same thing. Uh, biologically, they don't seem to make sense to me. And, and they seem to be, Jehovah's Witnesses seem to make try to make one thing seem as though it's the other thing. When it's really in truth, it's just not. There have been many reported cases of people being prepared to die and even some deaths from refusing blood transfusions. Uh, one case of note was a 14-year-old boy with leukemia that died just a few hours after a judge ruled in his favor um, not to receive a blood transfusion. But he had this to say. He said that the boy was giving himself a death sentence. And then just a few short hours later, he actually did die. So having a blood transfusion can lead to disfellowshipping among Jehovah's Witnesses if the person does not convince the elder board that they are repentant. This goes back to those spiritual abuses. They have to come to the board to convince them. Now we as Christians, we believe that when we repent of our sins, we, we go to God, we ask for forgiveness, we, we change our behaviors, um, and, and, and that God does a work in us. We confess our sins to God, we repent to God, but we don't have to convince the collective or a group of leaders that we are repentant. Now, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have to be convinced. A person can tell them, I had a blood transfusion, but I repent of it. But if they're not buying it, if the elders aren't buying it, then this person can still be disfellowshipped. This is still this idea of abuse that exists within the group. This is an unwise, unbiblical, and unsafe practice used by Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, to tell a somewhat personal uh, story here, I had a family member that uh, was going to have a baby. There were complications with the pregnancy, and the long story short is that this person wound up needing multiple blood transfusions. And thankfully, they, they received the blood that they needed. Uh, the mother and the child are doing fine today. But according to Jehovah's Witness perspective, views, theology, this person would have had to have died. It's a dangerous thing. Very, very dangerous thing. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and holidays, birthdays, Christmas, and Easter. We could spend an entire video talking about just this one issue of the observance 
of holidays and the things that they view as pagan. But what it comes down to for Jehovah's Witnesses is really just a lack of good exegesis of Scripture, failing to understand Scripture and building their own view into historical narratives. They just go to the Bible and they don't properly interpret it. They make it say what they want it to say rather than letting Scripture stand alone and be its own voice. For example, Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through 11 However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain." Jehovah's Witnesses know, they, they are aware that these uh, scriptures are speaking of Jewish holidays. But what they do, they apply it to uh, what they view are sinful holidays like Christmas and Easter and birthdays. Um, it's obvious reading this text that Paul is referencing the keeping of Jewish Old Testament feast days since he's dealing with Jews in Galatia. Just the entire context of the book lets us know that Paul is writing in reference to Jewish holidays. However, Jehovah's Witnesses take that and apply it to their perspective on holidays. Another thing that Jehovah's Witnesses do, they take examples from Scripture, and just because there is an example there that, that supports their perspective, they will teach that as doctrine. And it is always a, a, a dangerous practice to take a narrative passage and attempt to make it into a doctrinal passage. Um, some Some... Stories in the Bible are simply telling a narrative, and there's no need to try to build a doctrine into that. For example, they will go to the story of um, Herod and his birthday being celebrated and John the Baptist being beheaded um, on Herod's birthday. And they will say, well, since this terrible thing happened on Herod's birthday and they were celebrating Herod's birthday, well, then the celebration of birthdays must be evil because a terrible thing happened then. But we know that is not at all the point of what's being made in that scripture. It's this sort of guilt by association. They, they, they say, well, the scripture says this thing happened, and it really did happen in scripture. But then they attempt to associate their beliefs with that scripture. And that is not how the Bible is interpreted. That's not how scripture works. That will cause their members to associate death, destruction, and evil with celebrating birthdays because of something like what happened on Herod's birthday. <clears throat> so if this guilt by association approach to Scripture worked, and it doesn't, but if this guilt by association Scripture worked, if that were the case, we could expect a storm every time that we enter a boat because the disciples entered a boat and there was a storm. Every woman that wears makeup could be considered as a Jezebel. But any rational person understands that that's not how that works. Yes, Jezebel may have put paint on her face, but, but that guilt by association doesn't work in, in regard to Scripture. And if you hold a perspective that says that this thing happened in the Bible and you associate that with your view, then you are building Scripture into your own narrative and not letting Scripture stand alone. Every ungodly leader would be eaten from within by worms like Herod Agrippa did in the book of Acts. But we know this isn't a perfect rule. And it's not a perfect way of looking at Scripture. It's not a good method of scriptural exegesis or hermeneutics or of interpreting the Bible. It's just, it's just bad Bible study. Jehovah's Witnesses 
are guilty of this. And I hope that any anybody watching this video is on guard when they read their Bible. And you're not going to take Herod's birthday and associate all birthdays as being evil. You're not going to take uh, the disciples in a storm and feel like you can't get on a boat because it'll be a storm. You're not going to associate ungodly leaders and feel like they should all be eaten with worms and die. And you're not going to take the story of Jezebel and the fact that she painted her face and feel like every woman that wears makeup is now some sort of a terrible individual because of makeup. That's just not good biblical approach. Okay, Jehovah's Witnesses. Final question. The final thing that we need to answer, the big question, are they Christian? They claim to be Christian. They claim to have the ultimate truth and the ultimate say. But is that the case? My answer, no. I do not believe that this group can be considered as an orthodox Christian group. Are they a cult? Likely, yes. I think they would fall so far outside of the scope of orthodoxy that we could consider this group to be a cult. Are they dangerous? Yes. The abuses that occur within the group are quite dangerous. So if you or someone you know is involved with the Jehovah's Witnesses, I would strongly recommend that you leave as soon as possible and get away from these people. This may not be an easy thing, but please reach out to a local church in your community, somebody outside of the Kingdom Hall. These churches, if you're part of the Jehovah's Witnesses, that you are taught are your enemy. We are not your enemy. We love you. We care about you. Reach out to a church. Reach out to somebody you know that is connected to a Christian community. Let, let them help. They'll be there for you. Find someone to help you out of this deceptive group. So I don't say all of this to sound scary. I don't say all of this to try to paint Jehovah's Witnesses out as just a malicious group trying to harm people. For the most part, I don't believe that. Uh, I believe these people are genuinely lost. They're genuinely confused. So our response as Christians should be one of love. The next time they knock on your door... Um, don't find the most rude and snarky thing you can say just to get them off of your front step and then brag about it to all of your buddies at work Monday or your, your, your friends at church or, or don't do it in such a way to make you look more self-righteous. If you feel like you need to ask them to leave, do so in a Christian way. If you've done your best to reason with these people and they just won't hear you, be Christian, remain Christian in things. I'm also not saying just to invite them in. I'm definitely not telling anybody who feels uncomfortable to say, yeah, come right on in and, and you hear what they have to say. That decision is up to you. But we should lovingly share the gospel with them. We should be ready to give an answer to every man that asks a reason of the hope that is in us. We should be ready to defend our faith. Um, but if you don't feel ready, don't step into a conversation that you are not prepared for. Use wisdom, use discretion. But understand this, when you share the gospel with them, be ready to let them know that God did have a son. That son was Jesus. And that Jesus was fully man, but he was fully God. That he died and he rose physically from the grave. That he ascended back to his father. He's in heaven. 
and he is preparing a place to bring his people back to dwell with him forever. Let them know that, yes, there is a literal, physical, burning hell. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, when he died as the God-man, that we don't have to go there. It is an eternal place, but there is a way of escape made, and that is through Jesus Christ. And we can live eternally with him in heaven. And the greatest of all gospel scriptures, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jehovah's Witness friend, I want you to know God loves you. Christ loves you. He wants to set you free from this dangerous doctrine that you believe. Christian friend, I want you to know that Jehovah's Witnesses are loved by God, and he wants to set them free. So, that does it for our conversation on Jehovah's Witnesses. This has been an informative and a, and a great talk with you guys over the past several videos. But until we come to our next group and continue the series on cults, grace, and peace, guys, I'll catch you next time. Thank you.